Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you, wherever you may be living, are having a good weekend. I know where I'm at uh, right now, it's uh, very sunny outside, and there's nothing wrong with that. And normally, I will admit that uh, I do podcast uh, in the evenings. There are certain occasions where I will uh, podcast in the afternoons, and um, based upon where I'm living and all that, it's um, daytime, it's sunny outside, but I figured, you know, why not do things a little different and uh, podcast uh, during the day? Well, it's great to see that so many of you are enjoying uh, this new uh, book topic uh, podcast series, uh, The Victory with No Name, uh, The Native American Defeat of the First American Army. Uh, We are now going to be discussing part two of two uh, behind uh, Confederations in America in the year 1790. Uh, We certainly uh, explored a lot of um, relevant um, information, uh, relevant uh, history from the first uh, part of this uh, two-part series on uh, Confederations in America in 1790, but where we will be uh, picking up from in this uh, episode segment, uh, we will uh, learn about, um, we will learn as to why there were uh, certain people who were uh, opposed to the uh, whiskey tax that uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, the Treasury Secretary, had proposed and did get uh, enacted by Congress in March of 1791, but we do need to learn why there are those out there who are opposed to it. We also uh, need to uh, focus on Like, for example, whom was in charge of uh, Indian affairs in the early years of the uh, Republic's existence. And uh, we also need to um, understand what the new United States government policy was behind Indian-related affairs. Uh, Some other things that we will um, talk about, like, for example, are where in the United States Constitution uh, does it pertain to... um, the government's uh, handling of uh, Indian business affairs in terms of what the document states and what the uh, government itself um, can go about um, doing with regards to uh, conducting uh, proper um, affairs with uh, with uh, Indian nations. Uh, we will also learn um, such uh, other elements as what, you know, like for example, what was unique to the Ohio country for the Indians in the 18th century. Uh, we will also learn more about that uh, region known as uh, Kekionga that we uh, learned about in the uh, prologue to this series. I can also tell you that we will uh, learn more about what life was like in the post-Revolutionary War era based upon uh, many unknown um, answers to questions that um, had to be addressed and how were the uh, results going to be attained, uh, not just for short-term but uh, long-term. So. If I keep uh, providing you all with a little bit more information on what it is we're going to be learning about, um, I'm sure some of you might say, well, Kirk, what's the point in uh, even proceeding with this uh, podcast segment episode uh, if you're going to keep uh, shelling out uh, stuff? Well, there's nothing wrong with shelling out information, but I do know that what's important is uh, getting the uh, green light engine to uh, move forward with this uh, podcast segment episode with our uh, lead-off question. So, Here we go, folks, with part two of two behind uh, Confederations uh, in America within the year of uh, 1790. So 
I will tell you that, you know, yes, we will, you know, focus on 1790, but we do also have to focus somewhat on the past that uh, basically led up to uh, 1790, because just because, you know, we might talk about a particular year, it doesn't mean that everything that has taken place happened in that one year's time. Obviously, other events that took place, say, five, seven years beforehand, played uh, a contributing factor to where we might be in that present state of moment. So here we go, folks, with our leadoff question. Although Congress had enacted a tax on whiskey come March of 1791, how did Western settlers respond to it? Okay, when I think of Western settlers, I might think of those individuals living along what we might know of as uh, present-day Virginia, West Virginia, that borderline. I also might think of uh, settlers whom are living in what we now know as um, present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Even in 1791, folks, uh, for those of you who were with me when we talked about um, William uh, Hoagland's um, The Whiskey Rebellion uh, series from about uh, fall of last year that was, uh, we learned that uh, Pittsburgh was the furthest uh, western uh, most town in America uh, by 1791. Pittsburgh's population wasn't even at a thousand, folks. It was well below a thousand, but the population at the time of Pittsburgh was just shy of 500. But let's keep in mind that in 1791, the furthest westernmost village or town in America is what we now know as uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. And it was called Pittsburgh in 1791, but just keep in mind that that was the furthest uh, western uh, most uh, town uh, in uh, America at the time. But yes, when I think of uh, western settlers, I also think of those uh, people living in what we now know as uh, around Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio, uh, the western PA area. So uh, given that Congress has enacted this tax on whiskey, um, how do the western settlers respond to it? Well, they are in complete opposition they see this tax as a tool which benefited the mercantile elitists from the East. Why, why is that? Well, these um, farmers, or I should say settlers, but they are farmers in western Pennsylvania, um, distilling uh, whiskey, really, it's not their primary job. It, it's really a, a side job, but it's a side job that what we would think of in today's time as supplementing um, from your current income from primary job. But for these uh, farmers, they feel as though that whatever they um, produce, they're not going to get recognized for their hard work and all the profits are going to go to those whom are uh, within the higher end of uh, society or of the um, social hierarchy, uh, the mercantilists who represent the um, uh, the wealthy, you know, they represent those whom uh, whom can invest money, those whom not only invest money but uh, but get great profits in return. So, for these uh, farmers, they simply see the elitists from the east as not only being more likely to profit off of the work performed, but it's going to only uh, benefit the few and the masses. Being the farmers along the frontier, are are going to be. Um, left at the bottom, they're going to be uh, forgotten, they aren't going to be uh, seen as a, valued, um, as a valued group. You know, we all want to be valued, sure, we want to be recognized for the work that we produce, for the work that we contribute, but 
it might be fair to say even back in 1791 that there were um, individuals whom felt that the government was only looking after those whom had money, those whom had money to invest, like, say, land speculators, that the government is only looking after those whom, um, whom are simply valued. In other words, in the eyes of the uh, Western settlers, they don't see, they don't see that um, the concept of uh, being valued is at a full 100% uh, perspective. But farmers out, in, out west in the frontier region often had to rely upon the practice of barter. And for those of you who aren't familiar with what, bar, with what barter is or bartering is, it's an action or a really, in a sense, a system of exchanging goods or services without relying on hard money. What I mean by hard money, folks, is like, say, in the 18th century, you know, not everyone has access to gold or silver, but those who do are very well off. If you have what's called um, a Spanish millet, um, you can uh, cut up your coin into one-eighths. In other words, you don't have to use all of that coin at once to purchase something, but you can uh, use uh, what you have in, in one-eighths of the coin and still get um, and still retain what's left of your coin for other purchases at another time. So, so basically, if yes, for these farmers out west, they're not they. They are often not relying on money, but even if they did have money, the money that they would have had at one time would have been primarily uh, what we call paper money that you know might be valuable one day, but come tomorrow its value um, is uh, the exact opposite. But for these people, they are um, having to exchange goods or services without relying on money, and it also involves the selling of a good or service by one party in return for another good or service from a different party. So in other words, uh, the selling of one good to the purchase of another good, they have to uh, almost, they can't be just random goods. They have to be, um, each uh, transaction has to be worth the same value for what you're selling and getting in return. It needs to be of uh, proper value but if it means doing so through bartering. So for farmers out west, this is their way of life in terms of uh, money. Tr uh, this is the closest thing they can get to actual money, but it's, uh, but it's the best alternative that they can live with. Well, how about uh, with regards to Indian-related affairs? What was the new United States government's uh, policy behind Indian-related affairs? Well, it essentially boiled down to all things land-related. You know, yes, you would like to think that perhaps Indian-related affairs could involve making treaties. Well, yes, treaties did occur, but treaties weren't always um, happy occasions. You know, treaties, uh, we've learned, that, you know, yes, benefited one party, but it didn't necessarily benefit the other opposing party 100%. It might have benefited them at best 50%, but not even in many of instances uh, within the 50% threshold. So basically, yes, for, for the new United States uh, Republic, when it comes to Indian-related affairs, it's going to pretty much boil down to all things land-related. So the new U.S. government's overall well-being focused or relied upon turning Indian territory into U.S. real estate. 
a.k.a. government property, where all existing Indian villages or settlements, including hunting grounds, would be transformed into all things agricultural and economically benefiting the new nation on a large, or I should say mass scale. So in other words, we want to take these uh, people's uh, properties out west, not trying to sound political, folks, but you know we have to think about what, where the new government, what their focus is. They know that there is land uh, well west of the Appalachians. They've been dealing with this well before uh, the time shots were fired around the world at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, back from April 19th of 1775. We've learned that in the aftermath of the French and Indian War that uh, Parliament and the uh, British government reneged its promise on the colonists. In other words, defeating the French, you know, yes, they promised the colonists, those whom had land past the Appalachians, like George Washington, he had uh, vast tracts of land that went into um, Ohio, even into present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But, you know, the uh, Parliament promised uh, her subjects, hey, look, when this war is over, if we win, we'll see to it that you're allowed to um, be able to go uh, west based upon not only just establishing a settlement, but if you've already got tracts of land uh, invested, then we can certainly see to it that you be allowed to still uh, retain those rights. Well, <laughs> we all know that uh, Proclamation Treaty uh, did the exact opposite. Whom are the British now interested in looking after? They're interested in looking after the Indians. The Indians and in what we now know is the Northwest Territory, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. Yeah, they want to focus on the Indians. They want to make sure that they are protected from uh, further um, raids by settlers along the uh, western frontiers. So now we're the ones that are forbidden to go uh, west of the uh, Appalachians. So for this new um, United States government... Now that they have had defeated the mightiest empire in the world at the, with uh, the siege of Yorktown and the Treaty of Paris that ended the war, now they feel that maybe it's time for some payback where if we can you know, get a hold of this uh, territory, that we can get um, lots of people uh, from the eastern states to come uh, into the western uh, territory or northwest uh, territory where... Uh, new settlements can be established. It will help uh, better enhance our national security, and these people will be allowed to, uh, they will not only be allowed to, um, you know, establish homes, but uh, farmlands, and not only uh, just grow their crops, but perhaps uh, be able to, um, from a greater economical standpoint, as the nation grows with the Erie Canal, not only will the canal uh, transport immigrants to um, new uh, places, not only in New York State, but past uh, Buffalo and what we now might think of as Cleveland, Ohio, and elsewhere in Ohio, and eventually into what we know as Detroit, Michigan. But the goods that they produce will go in return eastward to um, markets uh, 3,000 miles across the ocean. So perhaps this grand envision of um, potential uh, establishment to the West will uh, benefit uh, both parties, that is, the people inhabiting those lands, that is, uh, the settlers, and then uh, the government 
um, looking after them from an economical uh, standpoint. So it's a great envision, but the problem is is that um, in obtaining these lands is not going to be a piece of cake. In the early years of the young United States' uh, republic's existence, all Indian affairs were handled by the War Department, and it stayed that way, folks, until 1849, when um, the Indian affairs were moved, or I should say switched over to the Department of Interior. So think about it, folks. Um, the Indian, um, All Indian affairs were handled by the War Department up until uh, 1849, meaning that 60 years after um, George Washington became president, um, it remained in that post. Uh, I did not know anything about that until having read this book. Now, as for the United States Constitution, what does the Constitution itself mention about regarding Indian business affairs? Well, the document asserts congressional power over all Indian Affairs under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, giving Congress the power to approve Indian treaties the same as to um, foreign nations with ratification by a two-thirds Senate majority. So, you know, whenever I think of treaties, well, first off, all um, treaties that the United States government is involved with or partakes in must be approved by the Senate with a two-thirds majority, meaning 67% or higher. But when the Constitution was created, that also meant uh, conducting, when it referred to foreign nations, that also meant dealing with Indian nations uh, well west of the uh, Appalachians, including Indian nations in the southeast. Uh, It basically, with any Indian nations that we would have come into contact with, but the big Indian nations are the ones to the Northwest with the uh, confederacies of the Northwest, Miami and uh, Wabash. And then to the Southeast, you have the uh, Creek Confederacy and you're probably also dealing with the uh, Seminole nation in Florida as well. So, uh, so those are our two big um, Indian uh, nation regions that uh, we are uh, confront that we are uh, confronting with. Uh, We haven't come across uh, the Sioux Indian Nation yet. That won't happen until uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition um, during Thomas Jefferson's presidency. Uh, What legislation did Congress pass in 1790 involving Indian affairs? Well, here's another big step. Um, Now we've uh, taken action on passing legislation that uh, involves Indian-related affairs. Well, Congress passed what is called the Indian Trade and Intercourse Act. Interesting name. What's unique about this legislation? Well, the, the Indian Trade and Intercourse Act of 1790 outlawed trading in the Indian country without a formal and proper license from Congress. Okay, so if you want to trade with Indians in the Northwest, or say in the Southeast, for example. What do you need to have? A license. Because without a license, folks, you're putting yourself in harm's way, and you're probably putting the government in harm's way as well. So, not only does this uh, legislation involve the um, 
prohib- prohibiting of trading in the Indian country without a license from Congress, but it also um, the law itself also declares all transfers of Indian land illegal without getting proper congressional approval. So in other words, you just can't, you know, come into Indian territory and say, well, you know, the government promised me and my family that I could uh, establish a new settlement and you're all not too far from your village, but I promise not to inflict any harm on you all. Um, But I was told by the government that I could do this and that. Of course, if if we're one of these Indian tribes, we're going to definitely see uh, the settlers or this uh, settler family as an invasive species. We're going to see them as a red flag. You know, I'm sure some some of them would say, "Okay, what proof do you have that you were even allowed to come into our to come into a, a land or a territory that is near the heart of our uh, village and all that?" You know, who gave you permission? So, in other words, uh, if you're going to be an Indian trader, you need to have a license, and you need to probably also be bringing proper documentation. I mean. <laughs> You know, I, I highly doubt that uh, Indian traders would have been able to have gotten away with just one piece of documentation, but I'm sure that they had to have a, a badge. They had to have had something else to to prove that, hey, I, I am in fact a trader and I am, you know, licensed to do business with you all. You know, it, this isn't one of these things that are going to be uh, come and go at a leisurely pace. New powers uh, provided by the Constitution, including increase in army size, enabled President Washington and War Secretary Henry Knox to shift course from strategical defense to frontier offense against Indian nations whom had already partaken in raiding existing frontier villages within the Northwest Territory. Okay, so prior to the Constitution, folks, you know, the only thing we could really do on the frontier was um, engage in defensive measures where we're protecting um, those whom are already, those whom had already um, made their uh, dwellings uh, known. Well, now that this Constitution has come into effect, and now that we have some legislation enacted, uh, being the um, Indian Trade and Intercourse Act, not only can we now get um, traders into the Indian country whom, um, whom are willing to establish uh, business practices with uh, Indian tribes, now we can also um, make our presence known from a militaristic standpoint that perhaps over time we might be able to engage in some other um, actions that, um, that, yes, the Indians may not like, but actions that will um, eventually over time Allow for the um, allow for the greater reality uh, to take place, and that uh, settlers can start coming in uh, further westward at at a more uh, rapid uh, level compared to um, previous levels prior to when the uh, U.S. Constitution was put into place. What I did find uh, interesting is that um, between 1790 and 1796, the United States government spent. million in fighting Indian confederations within the Northwest Territory. $5 million, folks, is a lot of money, and that was roughly about five-sixths, or I should say 83%, 83%, folks, of all money allocated 
So, you know, this War Department isn't, well, we might think of it as the early uh, version of the Department of Defense, but $5 million to um, spend on in fighting Indian Confederations. And I'm sure some people would say, well, couldn't some of that money have been spent more wisely? I mean, I'm sure there have to be people, even in the early years of the Republic's existence, who probably would have been opposed to uh, going westward. Um, because uh, one thing we did talk about from the previous podcast was that there um, there were those uh, who probably felt that if more people left east to go west, that there would be more uh, more division, partisanship, uh, land values would drop even more so in the east. So we've really got uh, a divide uh, between east and west and whether or not if western expansion were to take place, if it would make the country even more unified. So I think it's fair to say that there probably were people um, in the East whom were, whom did oppose, uh, whom opposed uh, based upon the amount of money that was used for um, fighting uh, Indian confederations within the Northwest Territory. Because, quite frankly, many of these people, yes, they probably didn't like the fact that it was happening. But two, what if we didn't get the results we wanted or that we sought to achieve? In other words, if we didn't achieve the results that we were um, intending to obtain, then what was the point in even um, what was the point in even investing all this time and energy into a into a project that um, that did not yield the results that it was supposed to get? I mean, we see that even in today's government. You know, people will say, "Why are we spending money on this when we should be spending it on something else that's more relevant?" What became uh, unique to the Ohio country for Indians in the 18th century? The Ohio country served as a fundamental meeting place to tribal nations and displaced peoples, which enabled those groups to reclaim their original identities per previous establishments. So when I think of um, Indian nations whom um, had been displaced uh, prior to, um, say, the American Revolutionary War or around the time of the American Revolutionary War, the one Indian nation that comes to my mind is the um, the Iroquois uh, nation uh, that we uh, learned about um, from um, the previous uh, podcast uh, episode and how uh, the Iroquois uh, Confederacy or the, the League of the Iroquois uh, dominated um, all relations within the uh, northeastern United States. But during the um, American Revolutionary War, uh, I probably shouldn't mention this just yet, but I can't... I, but I could tell you that the uh, Iroquois nation was uh, deeply uh, impacted by the Revolutionary War to where to where um, some of the uh, tribes that made up the uh, nation uh, did see um, negative repercussions uh, happen. And I'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But nonetheless, uh, I can tell you that uh, for the Iroquois nation, those whom um, escaped unharmed did go westward into um the Ohio country, where they were able to uh, reestablish themselves and also uh, establish uh, villages and were able to um, form alliances with uh, those nations in the, in the uh, Ohio country. Here's a good example of one, whom, of one uh, tribe that um, actually did at one time live in the northeastern woodlands uh, known as the Shawnee. And I do know that the Shawnee, uh, believe it or not, at one time uh, did live 
with regards to the state of Virginia where I live, um, the Shawnee did live in the present-day Shenandoah Valley, especially in the northern end of the valley in what we think of as uh, present-day Winchester, Virginia, which isn't uh, too terribly far from, say, um, Harper's uh, Ferry, West Virginia. But the Shawnee uh, originally fell under the northeastern uh, woodlands, being the coastal St. Lawrence and uh, Great Lakes um, regions. Uh, the Shawnee had once lived or started out in southern Ohio prior to uh, European contact, but this, but during the 17th century, the Shawnee Nation went um, past uh, the Ohio um, country and into places as far west as present-day Illinois to as far east as Maryland, Delaware, and uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, parts of uh, Virginia. The mid-18th century um, saw the Shawnee back in the Ohio country where they established villages along the Muskingum, Scioto, and Miami rivers. Another nation that um, originally lived in Ohio and probably had to uh, migrate at one point in time but did come back to Ohio was the Delaware Nation. And there is a place in um, Ohio called Delaware, which is uh, right outside of Columbus. The Delaware Nation saw some of their own peoples live nearby the Wyandot in Sandusky, northern Ohio. And there is a place in Michigan called Wyandot, Michigan, named after the Wyandot uh, na tribal nation. Uh, Wyandot, in case you're wondering where that is in Michigan, that's on the outskirts of Detroit. But uh, Sandusky is in uh, northern Ohio, uh, halfway between Toledo and Cleveland. The Shawnees and the Delaware Indian nations uh, often found themselves uh, frequently moving to uh, relocating, but this was also seen as a way of life for them. They were forced to also build, build alliances with the host of nearby tribal uh, nations. So it's one thing to uh, be relocating and on the move, but when you're doing that, what is something that you have to do? You have to be forming alliances because you never know when you're going to need um, another nation or two uh, to form a greater alliance, especially if it involves um, a conflict with another Indian nation over land. Uh, if it might involve, say, the presence of, um, of a European force, like perhaps France or Britain. You never know who might be um, encroaching on your territory, and you don't want them there because you know that they are, in the case of a colonial power, they could be seen as someone that's invasive, not native to your area, and they're simply looking for trouble. Uh, where exactly were many Ohio Indians living within northwestern Ohio? Uh, the majority of them were residing along the Miami Territory near the Maumee River, uh, not far from uh, Toledo, where the Eel River joins the Wabash River in northeastern Indiana and what we know as present-day Fort Wayne. So, yeah, Fort Wayne, Indiana, folks, it borders uh, right along um, Ohio, and, um, and I know this through my work simply in part because I know that um, for one, we have a, a, a trucking terminal, uh, the company, trucking company I work for. I know we have a terminal in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and they do service uh, parts of Ohio. So, so yes, when you look at a map of Indiana, of course, when we think of Indiana, we often think of Indianapolis, uh, but I also think of like Fort Wayne and uh, South Bend. But uh, various displaced Indians met up with uh, natives whom hailed uh, from the area known as Kekionga. Kekionga has uh, a variety of uh, different meanings. Um, it's often been called blackberry bush, kiskakon, 
Pecan's Village. Kekionga, folks, was the capital of the Miami tribe. The area uh, was comprised of a group of villages that were located around the confines of the St. Mary's and St. Joseph Rivers, which formed the Maumee River that flowed northeasterly into Lake Erie. And as I said from a previous podcast, that whenever you think of the St. Mary's River, folks, think of South Bend, Indiana, because where South Bend is located, it's in the northern, South Bend is, is in the northern part of the state of Indiana, where the University of Notre Dame is. Of course, you know, play like a champion, run out the tunnel, uh, but South Bend, Indiana is on the Indiana-Michigan line, and it's located on the southerly bend of the St. Mary's River. So as for Kekionga, its name, as I mentioned earlier, it's been called of various um, names from Blackberry Bush to Kiskakon and Pecan's Village. But Kekionga truly is referred to um, abundance of blackberries in northeastern Indiana. So where the village was located, there was obviously an abundance of blackberries, and so therefore um, that's why it was referred to um, as Blackberry Bush. Kekionga is often been was often referred to as in quotations, folks, as the Great Carrying Place. Why the Great Carrying Place? Well, Kekionga was a major route between the Great Lakes and the Ohio River. It was an intersection of multiple points a vital point for commerce, communication to diplomacy amongst Indians of the Ohio country and Detroit to the north where the center of British military power and trade lied within the Great Lakes. Well, think about it, folks. Uh, in Detroit, you're right on Lake Erie, but you're also not far from Lake Huron. Lake Huron and Lake Erie meet, meet up. So, yes, Detroit is in southeast Michigan, not far from present-day Toledo, Ohio, but given that the British have a strong um, establishment on the Great Lakes, that means that they can not only exert their influence on Lake Erie, but also to the north in um, Huron, even in uh, Lake Michigan, to the west and superior to the far northwest. Kekionga became the key trading post for Europeans, given the overall uh, location on the six-mile route between the Maumee and Little River, the Little River being north in northeast Indiana. The Maumee and Little River connected Lake Erie to the Wabash and Mississippi Rivers. I tell you folks, you know, it's one thing to see a river, but when you think about the geography of where a river is at and what other bodies of water are connected to it, it says a lot. It says a lot about what can come and go through from north to south, maybe east to west, but also the comings of people. And with the comings of people, you have to wonder, these relationships have to be strong. Because if they're not strong, then how can the comings and goings be safe without having to rely upon war to resolve further conflict or further uh, potential problems? So... Um, how about we answer this question here? Whom was chief of the Miami nation at Kekionga? His name was Little Turtle. That's a, that's a unique name, but hey, we have to keep in mind, folks, that Indian tribal leaders had very unique names. They weren't always called John Smith. Uh, they, 
they just didn't go by those random names. They had names that uh, served um, f- for sacred purposes. I would imagine in a further podcast episode down the road, we'll uh, probably learn why, in fact, uh, the chief of the Miami Nation was, in fact, called Little Turtle. But Little Turtle viewed Kekionga as a high and mighty gate where all Indian chiefs were required to pass through, regardless of direction, north, south, east, west. Kekionga as a, was really seen also as a site where allegiances, or I should say alliances, to forging trading networks with Indian traders took center stage. Okay, so if you really wanted to get to know an Indian trader, if you're an Indian, you come to Kekionga. Uh, that's how you can go about establishing business. This is where perhaps you establish trust, not just short-term, but long-term trust. This is where you want to um, know w- what you're getting yourself into, but this is where you know, okay, this is what to expect um, going forward. Uh, this is where the meeting place will be uh, for trading uh, goods. You know, okay, the European, this, the Indian uh, trading agent's going to have um, goods to provide me with, and when I come into the village, I have to make sure that I provide him with something that people of his own nationality are going to uh, benefit from, not just short-term, but long-term. Uh, what element or factor plagued Indians ever since the first European arrivals into the New World. I know most of you would think warfare, but it's not. It's disease. Disease, folks, um, wiped out several Indian nations. And the sad part about it, folks, was that the Indians simply had no means of attaining immunity to diseases that they had never come into contact before. So when the Europeans came over into the New World, folks, they brought such diseases as smallpox, yellow fever, typhus. That's just to name a few of a handful of diseases that were brought in. And while, yes, Europeans may have had some form of immunity to some of these diseases, not all, but the fact of the matter is that um, when they came into the New World, folks, it's one thing to come in contact with the Indians, but when you come into contact with them, you don't know what you might have uh, been transporting with you. Say if you had gotten sick on the voyage over, but you recovered, but who's not to say that your clothes would have been um, completely uh, ridden of the, uh, we call it, that your clothes w- that you wore would not have been completely ridden of the um, of the germs that were left behind. You know, we got to remember, folks, that the voyages that the Europeans took over, they didn't have uh, laundry machines on their ships. Uh, they didn't have, um, you know, uh, drying cycles. Um, as a matter of fact, I do remember uh, one time when I went to uh, Jamestown uh, to visit for a day trip, my wife and I were watching this introduct- introductory video, and one of the settlers took off his metal hat. He wanted to show it to one of the Indians, and he did. And then I thought to myself, my gosh, I wonder how long he could have been wearing his that hat. Who knows what germs could have been in that hat. And if the Indian had put it on, what if... I'm not trying to sound like a, a germaphobe, folks, but you just have to wonder when you come in... When two foreign peoples come into contact with one another for the first time, you just have to wonder what could they be uh, passing along that could have uh, long-term negative ramifications. So... 
Yes, disease was something, sadly, that wiped out many Indian uh, populations, uh, largely in part because uh, they just had no uh, immunity or resistance buildup, simply in part because they had never come into contact with the smallpox or the uh, yellow fever or typhus. But I do know that, uh, based upon uh, what I read in this book, that uh, there was a smallpox breakout that did take place in Sandusky, Ohio, over a two-year span starting in 1786, the year before the United States Constitution uh, was um, came into play, where sadly everyone, with the exception of two families, all died. Um, it's bad enough that two or three people can get uh, smallpox, but when you start passing it around, it can wipe out a community in a matter of seconds. And if you really want to talk about some uh, devastating uh, blow with smallpox, uh, the one that comes to my mind is what happened in 1793. Um, there was a terrible smallpox outbreak in Philadelphia, which was America's capital at the time. And the, the outbreak was so bad, folks, that, that the government was forced to shut down. Uh, leaders from George Washington to Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, they all left at the last minute, but luckily they left in enough time because if they had stayed longer, they would have succumbed to the, sm to the smallpox. But sadly... Uh, this uh, breakout of smallpox in Philadelphia in 1793 killed about 10% of the city's population. And um, even around the time that the Constitution was signed, Philadelphia had the nation's largest uh, population, right around 40,000. But I can't imagine 10% of the city's uh, population gone because of smallpox. So uh, smallpox, you know, yes, it's amazing to think that it, was just over 40 years ago that it was uh, eradicated uh, worldwide, but yet even in the midst of smallpox being eradicated, we were still confronted with other diseases that have still never been able to be fully eradicated like we were able to with uh, smallpox back in 1980 when it was finally uh, officially declared as being eradicated worldwide. Now, is it fair to say um, during the post-Revolutionary War era after 1783 and onward that Indian leaders felt more comfortable with British presence in the North, or I should say uh, in the Northwest Territory? Absolutely, yes. Uh, for starters, Indian leaders viewed British presence as less of a threat given British military officials, including Indian agents, offered more means of providing security against any American expansion attempts into the Ohio country. Secondly, British delegates and military officials were willing to go as far as proposing plans to designate the entire Northwest Territory as a fixed Indian country, meaning it would be a permanent Indian nation where all Indian lands got uh, preserved, including incorporating a uh, what's called territory as a protective barrier or a buffer between Canada and the new government to the south, being the United States Republic. So in other words, the British were willing to go as far as preventing not just any um, expansion, even though, of course, we have already declared, even though we've already won our independence from uh, Britain, the fact of the matter, folks, is that they are, the British still have presence uh, to the north, being in the Great Lakes and in the northwest, but they are willing to go as far as uh, making sure that, uh, that this northwest territory becomes fixed or permanent territory to where 
we could never even be able to um, not only just make our way there, but to be able to get rid of the Indians once and for all. So we've got a lot of uphill battles to face, folks. And in the late summer of 1783, not long after the Treaty of Paris had um, been ratified and uh, taken care of to where the war itself officially ended, Revolutionary War that is, delegates from 35 Indian nations convened in northwest Ohio at Lower Sandusky, where Mohawk War Chief Joseph Brandt, and the Mohawks were part of that um, Iroquois nation. Joseph Brandt um, was born in the Ohio country to having fought with the British in the Revolutionary War along the New York uh, frontier. He issued a call for all Indians by taking up arms in defense of their ancestral homelands. That's what the primary uh, purpose of this meeting was. Uh, so he was meeting with uh, Indian nations from the Huron, Wyandot, uh, Potawatomi. He was dealing with the Shawnees. Uh, he was dealing with um, Indian nations from the Miami Confederacy, Wabash, the greater Northwest. I mean, he, he was he was dealing with a multitude. With four, with 35, I mean, I would definitely say yes. For uh, Joseph Brandt, he presented to those nations in attendance a wampum belt. Any of you all know what a wampum belt is? Well, wampum is uh, shell beads. Um but the wampum belt itself was comprised of shell beads given that wampum belts were used to make agreements between peoples of opposing parties. Think about it, even between Europeans and Indian nations. But also including peoples from within, being Indian tribes. These wampum uh, belts um, also um, served as a measure for recording treaties to settling disputes. The presence of the wampum belt was all about uniting, not dividing. So even amongst the Indian nations, it was also meant to unite and not divide. Did Indians and Americans have much in common come the year of 1790? It turns out that they did, folks. Believe it or not, both sides do have some things in common. They both relied on large fields of of, say, for example, corn, because corn is a staple crop for both um, groups. And these large fields of corn are grown on lands that are known for uh, producing an abundance of other assorted crops as well. And so if you're um, growing an abundance of crops on large fields, then you know that that land is reliable for the long haul. But it's also a competition over whose land is going to be um, more valuable and whose land is going to sustain, whose land is going to be more sustainable in the end when it's all said and done with. But as for um, the Americans, it, I, I also learned that large number of American hunters concentrated on hunting animal game in the same terrain versus constantly expanding. You know, in other words, if you're going to hunt game, do it in one area. But if you keep expanding, you're going to deplete the population, not just of a particular kind of animal, but other kinds of animals to where, to where they simply will not be able to repopulate within a reasonable time. So stick within, your, uh, stick within the primary confines, hunt what's necessary, but don't hunt the same animal per each season. In other words, the Indians would have hunted deer 
during the fall and maybe in the winter, but would have allowed the deer population to repopulate during the spring and the summer. So it is fair to say that even the Americans were learning to take only what's necessary and let whatever you don't hunt, be it whatever you didn't kill, repopulate so that when the next fall and winter cycle seasons come, that population is replenished and you will be able to go about um, go about repeating the uh, cycle over in a uh, proper uh, phase. But also, too, um, Indians in 1790 along the Ohio country had villages which bore resemblances to American structures, log cabins. Both sides were dependent upon the fur trade, but for the Indians, the practice enabled them to obtain materials from steel Knives, axes, guns, lead shot, gunpowder, woolen blankets. Well, when the Europeans first came into the New World in the late 16th century, started the 17th century, what did they? Um, what had the Indians never really seen before? Metal tools, especially when uh, I know when the uh, colonists came to Jamestown um, in Virginia in 1607, some of the things they um, introduced the Indians to were guns. Uh, they introduced them to metal tools, copper pots, and the Indians benefited from them. So both sides are, you know, benefiting in various ways. As much as Indians had fought left and right in keeping settlers from entering into the Ohio country, whom could they not turn away? The traders, the trading official agents. Indian traders did not live separately, folks, but rather instead they lived with the Indians. The traders married, or I should say the agents, married into Indian tribes, which included producing families, to inhabiting or inheriting a diversified society where friendships to cooperation stood on the same ground as conflict and violence, unity, unification, in the best and worst of times. So in other words, you know, you just if you're an Indian trading agent, you're not going to be a bachelor. Okay? This is a man's job, folks. Uh, women, you know, there's no such thing as female trading agents. So if you're a man, you obviously have to be a bachelor, but you but by becoming an Indian trader, you are going to have to marry into the uh, families. And this way by marrying into the families, you can see how both worlds work. You can uh, work to make sure that both ends are uh, being treated equally and are not being uh, taken advantage of. Traders, or I should say the trading agents, weren't the only non-Indian peoples living beyond the Ohio Territory. It just so happens, folks, that captive peoples from the frontier settlements, based upon what I've read, whom were abducted by Indian parties, ended up getting indoctrinated into Indian societies. So believe it or not, folks, if you were on the frontier and you were uh, captured by an Indian tribe, sure, they could, um, I mean, sure, it probably did happen where some people sadly were massacred and lost their life. And that, you know, that's a terrible thing to have happened. But historians know that for many um, European settlers who were captured, they did get indoctrinated into um, Indian societies, most notably a, a man named Simon Gurdy. He was captured by Indians during his youth and went about fighting alongside the Indians and British during the Revolutionary War. He went on to serve as a culture broker. And what is a culture broker, folks? 
A culture broker is an intermediary person whom work to resolve existing gaps between two parties where issues could be modified. Okay, so if you are a, a culture broker and you've married into the Indian uh, society, then you need to do everything you can to make sure that to make sure that Indians and settlers, white settlers, can learn to coexist with one another, even if there are times where they may not agree on everything 100%, but even if they do have some kind of disagreement, then the least that they could do is learn how to disagree without being disagreeable, and, and the worst thing to go about doing is uh, engaging in war where relations, not just with one tribe, but with multiple tribes, become so sour to where the peace cannot be restored. Uh, did Americans, including Native Americans, both disagree on many matters? Yes, they did. Each side had their fair share of, um, of uh, matters that they disagreed on. For the Americans, under the New Republic, they were divided over how the role of government was to function, or I should say operate in terms of whether the government should be a strong, powerful central government or a weak central government. If you're a Federalist, you would want a strong central government. If you're an anti-Federalist like Thomas Jefferson, you'd want a weak central government. Defined powers of state and national governments, the issue over taxation, the roles of women and slaves, whether government itself should be agricultural or mercantile, to wondering if westward expansion would even unite this uh, young republic or would it divide, divide it. For the Native Americans, they debated over how to go about changing their ways of life while at the same time making sure they stayed united behind what lied to the East, being the U.S. government and its quest for seizing all Indian land along the Northwest Territory. Defending ancestral lands meant defending their own personal relationships to the land, what the land represents what the land represented, to interpreting what they envisioned America to look like. So in other words, okay, we don't mind changing some things about our life or our lifestyle, but at the same time, we've got to stay united because we know it's just a matter of time before the government, this new uh, American government, wants to um, try to cheat us out of our ancestral lands. It's only a matter of time before they... Um, Annie, the uh, stakes to where they um, engage us in war, to where they really just want to take over all of our land and pretty much uh, dispossess us once and for all. So they know that uh, that the peace can only last but for so long, but they know that it's just a matter of time before things change. Uh, how did Indians and Americans come to um, see land? Well, the Indians in, in the Northwest, or I should say in Northwest Ohio, viewed land as something not reserved for just one person or party, but instead they saw land as something um, big. They saw it as um, an entity that had to be shared by all living people, by all people living amongst one another, I should say. A sense of cohesiveness, teamwork, it had to be all about us, we ourselves, because they probably knew that there were many um, in the East being uh, land speculators, settlers, and even federal government officials 
whom had this I-me-myself mentality, and that's probably what scared many of them. As for um, the Americans, when I think of the Americans, how about those American speculators? To settlers and government officials, they viewed land as property which got broken down into small-sized plots of real property and individually owned. The mission behind defending land for Indians was a large-scale objective that united Indian nations, but also helped unify those Indian nations whom might not have been previously 100% unified uh, prior to, but are now on the same page. I tell you folks, it's one thing to have land, it's one thing to have, have remained on your ancestral homelands, for um, not just for centuries, for years, but you know, even for centuries. But it's one thing uh, to also know that as the times change, America is you know wanting to expand, and now we have to think to ourselves, how far is America willing to expand? And you know, we do have to take into consideration in the early 1790s, America does expand. And then, if you're Indian, if you're not only just an Indian, but a part of an Indian tribe or part of a broad confederacy in the Ohio Territory, now you have to wonder when will we be next in terms of America trying to conquer us, and what are we going to do to make sure that we keep our way of life intact, and so that um, we're not pushed out of the system altogether. We're not pushed out to the point where we no longer become. Um, relevant. In other words, for the Indians on the um, in the Northwest, they know that two nations could exist. The problem is that when it comes to boundaries, is the government to the East going to fully recognize its boundaries? Is it going to be able to realize where is the stopping point? How far do we need to go? Can we get along? There are so many unknown questions still, but what I do know is that on in December of 1790, President Washington gave his second message to Congress, where he mentioned having dispatched military, military troops into northwest Ohio in the midst of an earlier setback that had taken place two months earlier when the U.S. Army was routed at Kekionga. Remember uh, Brigadier General Josiah Harmer? He led a force into uh, Kekionga, and just over 260 troops were uh, killed, wounded. This is not uh, good, folks. I mean, it's one thing to want to try to take land, but, you know, if you don't have the right leadership or if you don't have the right um, style of fighting, if you don't have, if you don't have anything that's um, properly uh, written out, if you don't even have the means of... Um, funding or maintaining an army, then how can these missions prevail? So we have to remember, folks, even in the early 1790s, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, a lot of um, unresolved issues. And the bigger question is, is even when these issues are resolved, how will America still remain unified? Well, as Benjamin Franklin said, of course, he had already, he died in April of 1790 it was. Unfortunately, he didn't make it into that first census, but he said three years previously in 1787, he said, we're going to call it a republic. The bigger question is, is can you all keep it? So even in, after a few years, we still have to wonder, can we keep this thing? And can we still achieve, achieve, achieve our objective in going west 
and establishing territory to where the United States grows beyond the original 13 colonies. Well, that concludes this uh, episode of Segment to the Victory with No Name. Uh, When I'm on the air again next, we are going to talk about building a nation on Indian land. Thank you for your time as always, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe and uh, look forward to being on the air with you all next. Take care.